the 2015 Paris Agreement committed nearly 200 nations to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. However, the pledges countries made in Glasgow's COP26 put the world on track for a temperature increase of 2.4 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. Was COP27 successful in reviving the 1.5 degrees goal and in turning climate pledges into action? I am Bushra Nassar, Marketing and Communications Manager for Advisory Services at WSP Middle East. And in this episode of the Anticipate podcast, I am pleased to be joined by May Faraj, Senior Advisory Director in Environment and Sustainability, and Mahmoud Hashish, Associate Director, Environment and Sustainability at WSP Middle East. So welcome to the Anticipate podcast, May and Mahmoud. Thank you for joining us. In today's episode, we will discuss some key outcomes from COP27 and the journey to COP28. We will then dive into the implications that these outcomes have on our region, our industry, and what role should private and public sectors play to achieve climate commitments. Mahmoud, I'll start with you. So the main objective of COP27 was to move from pledges to implementation. Would you say that this objective has been achieved? And what other key breakthroughs and outcomes has COP27 managed to achieve? First of all, uh, thanks for having me for this podcast. And to answer your question, I think we could consider COP27 as a transitional COP. While COP26 was centered on promises with governments and industry organizations pledging to reduce emissions and fundamentally change habits to slow the effects of climate change, COP27 was focusing on actions and its aim was to make progress as well as strengthening commitments to tackle the climate crisis. It has often been said that climate action is moving from target settings into the implementation phase. What COP27 has showed was that as the implementation phase begins, integrity and accountability will be ever more critical. In my opinion, and I would say that COP27 was ended up with the main objective of achieving greater accountability, greater solidarity, as better coordination among countries. For the outcomes of COP27, there are many breakthroughs. The first one is the historic moment achieved for the loss and damage fund. Loss and damage refers to how developing countries are suffering from climate change while having contributed little to it. Developing countries have been seeking financial assistance for money needed to rescue and rebuild the physical and social infrastructure devastated by extreme weather. And COP27 will go down in history as the United Nations Climate Change Conference with the loss and damage fund was agreed. The second takeaway that I'd like to reveal that is the debate on accelerating the energy transition. Apparently, there was insufficient progress on the energy transition both in and around COP27. Few countries followed through on their promises to increase the ambition of their nationally determined contribution. Although Australia and European Union were rare exceptions among the developed countries, higher fossil fuels due to a Russian invasion of Ukraine can and should have resulted in an accelerated energy transition. The final text of COP27 contained a provision to boost low energy transition. That could mean many things from wind, solar farms to nuclear reactors and also coal-fired power stations fitted with carbon capture and storage. Last year at Glasgow, a commitment to phase down the use of coal was agreed. It marked the first time as a resolution on fossil fuels and had been included in the final text. Some would say for 30 years of conferences on climate change, but at COP27, some countries led by India wanted to go further and include a commitment to phase down all fossil fuels. But at the end, it failed. 
The, the next takeaway uh, is the discussion on the first global stock take. The global stock take is a process that is critical both for implementing the Paris Agreement and accelerating climate action. Participants at COP27 shared the best available science and assessment of mitigation adaptations, also means of implementation. They also showcased uh, climate solutions, uh, identified barriers that stand in the way of taking action. It's no secret that global emissions need to be nearly halved by 2030 for the world to stand a chance for achieving the Paris Agreement's goal to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees centigrade. Next year at COP28, parties and delegates will finalize a global stake take, which will include a review of national progress in meeting carbon abatement targets. This will be a key moment and unfortunately is likely to highlight once again how much faster the world needs to reduce its dependency on fossil fuels. The last and also as an interesting takeaway is about the elevation of nature-based solution. So at COP27, nature-based solutions were included in uh, United Nations climate negotiations cover discussion for the first time. The text encourages parties to consider nature-based solutions or ecosystem-based approaches while ensuring relevant social and environmental safeguards. In conclusion, after the COP27, there will be many questions and reflections over tactics chosen by different parties and actors. Thank you, Mahmoud. This was a very thorough and insightful answer. So basically, just um, a, a few wrap-ups. So as you say, COP27 was a transitional COP. And we are seeing that developing countries are seeking assistance and starting to take action. So may a question for you. Have we seen more countries making new climate commitments and what implications might this have on our region and the world? This is a very good uh, question, uh, basically, Bushra. And I think Mahmoud had touched based on a few key areas and few key agreements that drive a lot of those commitments, the likes of Paris Agreement, for instance. So in summary, I'd say definitely yes, commitments are rising. And based on the latest report that has been driven by the United Nations climate change, it shows that countries are bending the curve of global greenhouse gas emissions downwards. This curve is driven by an increase in commitments and potential implementation. So obviously it drives your emissions downwards, hence bending that curve and capping the level of emissions and carbon dioxide related equivalents uh, that might sort of push those emissions upwards. And sort of touching on that next question that you've mentioned over there, which is around your implications, basically. I'd also like to reference another key report that was uh, issued by the United Nations uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for 2018. And that report indicated that CO2 emissions needed to be cut down by 45% by 2030, compared to the levels that were measured in 2010. And in addition, um, obviously, this is critical to the to the Paris Agreement goal, which obviously looks at limiting the temperature rise by 1.5 degrees Celsius and ensures alignment with also the COP26 and 27 commitments, which Mahmoud has already mentioned um, earlier. So, so basically, the, the, going back to the question, the implications are crucial to ensure that we avoid the worst impacts of climate change, including more frequent and severe droughts, heat waves, and rainfall. And in order to achieve those emissions or commitments, low emission development strategies and transition to net zero plans are crucial at a government level. Hence, we need to expect 
to see a larger shift towards developing and implementing such plans. I'd also, in this regard, like to reference another key report that was issued by the United Nations Climate Change, um, and that was specifically on the long-term low-emission development strategies, where actually this report looked at uh, the country's plans to transition to net-zero emissions by or around mid-century. And the report also indicated that these countries' greenhouse gas emissions could be roughly 68% lower in 2050 uh, when compared to 2019, if all those long-term strategies are fully implemented on time. So it's clear that actually with the drive and the implementation, there's a huge chance to cut down on those emission percentages. And current long-term strategies as well, which are particularly represented by 62 parties in the Paris Agreement, account for around 83% of the world's GDP, basically. So again, large numbers, large percentages, so this is basically a, a very strong signal that the world is starting to aim towards net zero emissions. Absolutely. Thank you so much, May. This is uh, really helpful. Um, but I just have one question, actually. So when you were saying that um, CO2 emissions this year have to um, decrease by 45 percent um, compared to what percentage in 2010? Yes, particularly in 2010, the percentage was floating at around... I'd say around 50 as well, 50, 55. But again, we've been working towards a decrease in that percentage because certain steps have been taken to reduce um, yes. those emissions anyway. So you feel that or you see that there is already a key drive towards reducing those percentages naturally. But again, now we have a bigger challenge, which is a shorter time frame, which a lot with a larger number. Yes, yes. So really, like all these commitments are coming into play. Um, Mahmoud, over to you now. Uh, climate finance was perhaps one of the most important agenda items in COP27. What were the main outcomes in this regard? Thanks, Bushra, for this important question. And I think it, it aligns with what May has said. So in order to achieve all these commitments, we have to have finance in place. So it's a key factor to achieve all these commitments. In my opinion, I believe that consolidated support for adaptation and increasing climate finance was probably the hottest topic at COP27. Basically, the main challenge discussed for adaptation at COP27 were related to the financing needs for developing countries. The demand for climate finance from developing countries are enormous, around $4.3 trillion. Developed countries have pledged to provide around 100 billion per year for climate finance, but unfortunately in 2020, only 83 billion has been raised, primarily for mitigation and only about a third for adaptation. So we can see there is a big gap. And at COP27, it has been acknowledged that an urgent and immediate action is needed for new and additional and adequate financial resources to, ad to assist developing countries that are particularly vulnerable to the adverse effect of climate change. Of course, also in responding to economic and non-economic loss and damage associated with the adverse impact or effects of climate change. So the decision, the decision has been made on establishing these new funding arrangements for assisting developing countries with a focus on addressing loss and damage by providing and assisting in mobilizing new and additional resourcing, including sources, funds, uh, processes, initiatives under the, the Convention of, of, of Paris Agreement. 
And as I mentioned in, in my uh, previous answer, that agreement on the, the, on the new loss and damage fund was a huge success and a huge breakthrough in COP27, and we have to build on. Nevertheless, the, dif the difficult part now is to, to collect this fund and how we can set up this fund. There is no agreement yet on this. And hopefully in the next COP, this will be a kind of more, more structure. There are also other few outcomes related to the climate finance during COP27. One of them, one of them is the G, G7 and the V20, which is the vulnerable 20 uh, countries launched the Global Shield Against Climate Risks, which is a new commitment for over 200 million US dollars as an initial funding for implementation they expected to start immediately on this, on this initiative. Another one is uh, the announcing of a total of 105 uh, million US dollar in new funding to support the global environment facility targeting the immediate climate adaptation needed for low-lying and low-income states. And there is also another one announced around the uh, financial outcome for Indonesia Just Energy Transition Partnership, which is at the G20 summit that there also uh, has been held in parallel with uh, COP27 which will mobilize around $200 billion uh, over the next three to five years to accelerate an energy transition. So a lot of initiatives, uh, a lot of uh, discussions about the climate uh, finance, which again, we can't achieve any commitment would have without having this uh, climate finance in place. It started in COP27 and it should also be uh, continue during the uh, next next COP in, in UE. Thank you very much, Mahmoud. Really, like your answers are, are, are very thorough. Um, so basically, so the whole world, as we see, is shifting toward climate action, climate finance, and all these commitments. So my, my next question is basically, COP28 is particularly significant because it's marking the end of the first global stock take. Do you think countries would have been able to catch up to these commitments by then? Obviously, this is a journey, basically. So, so you'd expect that it would take a bit of time to achieve those commitments, and not just the time, but also ensuring that there is a dedicated, committed sort of delegate that would just focus on ensuring that such commitments are achieved. Um, and the transition to a green growth pathway needs to be accelerated in order to achieve the the Paris Agreement. Um, so, in I know that, for instance, Mahmoud did mention the G20 countries, and obviously the G20 countries do play a major role in building capacity in developing countries and meeting commitments concerning climate finance and enabling the engagement of the private sectors as well as part of those G20 country development plans. Um, in addition to investing in the de developing world. So all of those are, are obviously key, key focus areas that need to be that need to be part of those commitments to ensure a, a, a tangible a tangible step change in, in achieving uh, the commitments. There needs to also be a large focus on the challenges and opportunities faced by developing countries that are related to the Paris Agreement. Um, and the implementation and financing of the green growth plans in numerous high priority areas is crucial and can be achieved through a, a bunch of different strategies 
um, from renewable energy transition to electrification of transportation, green buildings and infrastructure and green employment. All of those are key initiatives that need to be taken as high priority to ensure that all of those funds and finances are, are channeled in the right implementation manner. So there are a few strategic recommendations that can support achieving those commitments. And those those firstly include that all countries, both developed and developing, need to redirect public policy and finance economy-wide to achieve deep decarbonization. Another key recommendation is that the G20 countries should also have successful replenishment of the climate fund or the Green, green Climate Fund, which again was mentioned by Mahmoud earlier. In addition, to a few other key steps that can be taken, such as the green transformation uh, that will need to take place with hundreds of millions of green and decent jobs to ensure that there are a lot of jobs that are focused on achieving those uh, those commitments. And finally, civil society and consumers should pay a key role in that transformation as well. So as you can see, there are different stakeholders, there are different commitments that need to be put in place in addition to the funding and financing. Those various components should then be taken forward as actions for that implementation and successful achievement. Thank you very much, May. So basically, if we were to look inward and as WSP, how will we contribute to the achievement of COP27 commitments? Mahmoud. Thank you for this interesting question, Bushra, because it, show, it should show the, uh, the audience how WSP is an integral part of the climate change uh, transition. So I would say that WSP is positioned as a leader to address the global challenges delivered at the local level. Every day in WSB, we develop and implement strategies to reduce carbon emissions, increase capacity to adapt to changing climate, improve resilience, and bring green infrastructure online. We also have our future ready, the designs and advice to our clients, and we have an outsized impact on reducing their emissions and accompanying them on their own journey to net zero. When it comes to uh, COP27, WSP was amongst 57 global companies that are leaders in sustainability, endorsed an action declaration to Paris align their climate policy engagement activities. This action declaration outlines how industry leaders is in the movement to decarbonize the economy. Actually, at WSP, we have an enormous opportunity to influence and to be at the heart of the climate change solution through the work that we are doing every day. Decarbonization, uh, climate resilience, climate adaptation are integrated into everything we do to build for the resilience of a warmer planet and for the efficiency and low consumption of a net zero world. There are a few things that uh, happened last year for WSP. So in March 2022, WSP published its first standalone task force on climate-related financial disclosure report which addresses the potential impacts of climate change on our business. Also last October, WSP net zero target has been approved by the Science-Based Targets Initiative, where WSP commits to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions across its value chain by 2040. Also uh, last year in, in August, WSP published its climate transition plan, which provides an overview of uh, key strategies that uh, WSP uh, is going to implement to achieve these targets with a, a collective transition to a, a carbon, a low carbon uh, future. 
Thank you, Mahmoud. And I'd like to add one point as well that um, we have also signed uh, the Responsible Companies Climate Pledge. So uh, this has been a recent commitment from our end as well. Um, that we will be um, uh, one of the responsible private companies um, moving forward in terms of climate. So it's basically everything that we have been doing, but we will continue to do. And uh, by signing this pledge, this is only like um, uh, solidifying this commitment. So May, the next question is basically for you. What is the importance of adopting PPP frameworks and enhancing the private-public collaboration for achieving the required climate outcomes? This is a very timely question and actually a point to raise, uh, especially with the COP28 just in our foresight, basically. Um, so the public-private partnerships are one of the options um, around taking those discussions forward into a successful, uh, successful uh, partnership around carbon management and carbon enhancement and actually looking at, at capping uh, emissions. And, and in addition, it is actually a promising avenue that may offer both practical and conceptual solutions to ensure productive interaction of public and private finance organizations. PPPs, um, aim for public and uh, public service delivery while they seek to benefit from mutually benef beneficial partnerships and they remain founded on a public oversight and this is part of their uniqueness. Um, they therefore provide sort of a framework to ensure that both the public leadership and accountability in tackling climate change are taken forward while enabling the ownership of certain components of climate finance to be transferred to private hands. So it creates that sort of leverage between both parties and ensures the effectiveness in its product. Uh, PPPs, however, have not been very famous uh, over the past years because of their few drawbacks um, as perceived by, uh, by the market or as perceived by the public. And those specifically include them being a bit too difficult to bring into play when you have different parties of different backgrounds trying to have those discussions and negotiations. It does take a lot of time and effort. In addition, at times they are perceived as not being very commercially viable. Hence, they've sort of been put to a less priority by the finance community, given the driver of, of the finance community, and that's mainly the financial benefit of that. However, despite all of those commercial challenges, PPPs remain a very valid option and could have an important role in the broader international climate finance landscape, particularly, as I mentioned, with the COP28 insight and a greater focus on the role of non-state actors and public-private partnerships to ensure that we achieve the 1.5 degrees cap. Research and stakeholder consultation would be needed for us to achieve those targets that we had mentioned previously. And the PPP or the investment and the planning that comes as part of those frameworks is quite crucial for such, for such a deployment of climate support. Thank you very much, May. Thank you. Um, so basically, the next question is around COP28 taking place in the UAE. How do you anticipate this summit to be different from previous COPs? Um, again, I think you touched on a very interesting point earlier, Bushra, around us WSB signing the recent pledge. And I think us being part of that commitment or pledge is, is again, quite crucial for us to be in action towards achieving that timely impact. So. COP, 
every COP has its own differences, has its own uniqueness. And it would be very interesting to see how that would be tallied in the UAE. But in my view, one of the main uh, the main differences I foresee in the upcoming COP28 is its potential to be a timely, impactful event, potentially. Some Arab countries are perceived to be the largest contributors to emissions with their ever-changing climates, while those Arab regions as well are the most impacted with climate change. And we've seen it with the water scarcity, with desertification, with the loss of biodiversity being some of those impacts that we are foreseeing and witnessing at the moment. So this would further drive the aspiration to aggressively progress the net zero targets and hence lead to a more tangible, positive, impactful future. And this is really, again, driven by COP28 being in a region that is featuring and undergoing a lot of those a lot of those challenges in terms of climate change, in terms of water issues, in terms of um, the biodiversity scarcity as well in many regions. Also, the, the massive development that can sort of encroach into those key areas, hence being amidst of, of all of this action is quite quite impactful and I see this being one of the one of the most I'd say differential impactful aspects of, of the event being in the region or in particularly the UAE. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're all uh, really looking forward to COP28 and how to basically support um, and prepare for COP28. So to this point, Mahmoud, so what contributions should we expect from WSP and the private sector to support COP28? Thanks, thanks, Bushra, for this question. I would say that WSP is always at the forefront of supporting the UE net zero by 2050. Uh, we, uh, as WSP and also other private sector companies based in the UE, commit to stepping up our collective efforts to combat climate change by reporting uh, green ga greenhouse gas emissions in a transparent manner, also developing measurable plans in line with the uh, UE national sector uh, climate targets to reduce uh, our carbon footprint, also sharing uh, these plans with the UE government to contribute to achieving the national uh, net, uh, net zero target by 2050 or uh, earlier. Also, uh, factoring in climate change mitigation and uh, adaptation measures as core principles uh, of our business as WSP and uh, our operational models as well. Uh, also, uh, we encourage and engage stakeholders, including uh, our suppliers, partners and consumers to actively take part in climate actions to help the UE reach uh, net zero by 2050. And maybe I conclude by saying that WSP uh, pledged to support the UAE government in reaching net zero and aligning all our efforts with uh, COP28 uh, commitments. Thank you, Mahmoud. Thank you both very much for the insights that you shared with our listeners today. There is basically so much significance in COP28 taking place in the UAE as it really emphasizes the strong foundation on climate action and environmental sustainability that has shifted today to a proven track record of reducing emissions, accelerating the growth of renewable energy and enabling energy transition. As WSP and in line with our values, we look forward to supporting the journey to COP28 and contributing to the achievement of COP27 commitments. To our audience, thanks for listening all the way through. Please leave us a comment if today's episode has sparked your interest and don't forget to join us in two weeks for a new talk. Thank you very much.